this time is right now. I know you think it's time for you to just sit back in your somewhat comfortable chairs in this cold auditorium and listen to the nice preacher talk about nice things and tell moderately funny jokes. But you're wrong! Because first of all, according to my wife, the jokes aren't even moderately funny. Amen, somebody says. Never get amen. Do you get an amen for that? Ridiculous. <laughs> but second of all, I'm going to take a poll right now, and you're going to raise your hands, and you're going to like it. So there. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you a word, and I want you to tell me if you think that this word has positive, neutral, or negative connotations. Okay? So here, here's the word. The word is hedonist. As in someone who is devoted to hedonism. How do you like that definition? Just use the word in the definition. It's good. Uh, how many of you, by raising your hands, would say you have positive connotations with that word? You think that's a great word. Somebody who's in hedonist, that's a great thing. Anyone? N not really. How many people have neutral connotations? It's like, ah, it could be bad, could be good, whatever. How many people have bad connotations? Like all of you. And I agree. Because I, I hear that word and I think of someone who is selfish, who lives short-sightedly, who lives wastefully. I, I mean, for me, it's entirely negative, right? Because the dictionary definition is that it's someone who is devoted to pleasure as the most important thing in life. That sounds pretty selfish and self-centered to me. But here, here's the startling and counterintuitive thing I'm going to tell you today, which is that the Bible actually encourages us to be hedonists when rightly understood, so we're obviously going to talk about that. We're going to get into that this morning. But there's the, there's the startling countercultural claim. Now let's pray and read this text that points us in that direction. So Lord, again, we come and we, uh, we give you our hearts. We are so uh, grateful, God, to be able to worship you, to be able to say to you that you are our friend, our, our first and our last, that you are holy and awesome and glorious in your splendor, and yet that you have come down to us in the person of Jesus, that you have entered into relationship with us, and that you pour out your love on us, Lord, and, and that you have given us your word, this living and active word that, that convicts and, and refines and renews us, and we pray for that this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Ecclesiastes 9 this, uh, this morning, verses 1 to 12. We've been in this series in Ecclesiastes over the last uh, month or so on and off. Nate preached uh, from Ecclesiastes last week. We're in it again today. So Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 to 12. Here it is. The teacher, as he calls himself, says, So I reflected on all of this, and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil. And there's madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. And even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, 
and drink wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun all your meaningless days. For, <laughs> for this is your life. You should be laughing. It's serious stuff. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. All fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take this thought in Ecclesiastes and we're, we're going to we're, we're going we're gonna to trace it, we're going to track it, and, and we're going to push it out a little bit into some other passages of Scripture, fill it out a little bit. But that's where we're going to go. And, and we're going to start with where the author of Ecclesiastes starts from, which is, is death, and particularly the inevitability of it. He says the, the same fate awaits everybody, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, good or evil, same thing. And, and he says this kind of about life in general. Something Jesus says, too, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, look, the, and God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Life happens to them all. I mean, can you imagine if this wasn't the case? If, like, in November, when we've had 40 days and nights of rain, that's not a prophecy, that's just a factual statement, uh, even though there's not 40 days in November. Uh, can you imagine if, like, you know, Nate, as the one righteous person among us, everywhere he went was just this, like, ray of sunshine. It was raining everywhere else, but everywhere Nate went, it was just this beam of, like, we would have the greatest youth ministry ever. Everybody would be like, I want to hang out with Mr. Sunshine, right? But that's not the way life works. When it rains, it, it rains on all of us. When the sun shines, it, sh it, it, it shines on all of us. Life happens to all. But the teacher's concern isn't just with life in general. It's, it's about death in particular. He says it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from. Death is, is, is going it, to hit you. It, it reaches everybody. He talks about the, uh, the madness in the human heart as, as we live. I don't know if this is exactly what he's talking about, but you think about the, the frantic, panicked pace that a lot of people live life at. I grew up in a small town in Manitoba. Pace of life was a lot slower. In Lower Mainland, life feels really, really hurried and rushed often. And I know some people have lived in places like Hong Kong and Toronto and L.A. and New York, way busier places. Yet people rush and they rush and they rush and they try to accumulate as much stuff as they can and build up as much notoriety and status as they can. They rush and they rush and they rush and then they die. All of them. They're in the grave. And you can just hear the teacher in Ecclesiastes saying, what's the point of all of this? You live life with this stress, with this panic, but you all end up in the same place. Now, for all the angst that the teacher has, he does say it is better to be alive than to be dead. After all, the living know something, even if the only thing they know is that they're going to die. At least they know something. The dead, he says, they know nothing. They have nothing. It's just the end of the road. Now, look, we can, as... as as people in, in wake of the resurrection of Jesus, we can know that death is not as final as the teacher thought it was. 
We know that there is life after death because of the resurrection of, of Jesus. That's what I mean. We, we take the thought in Ecclesiastes, we push it further, we push it through to other texts. But we can agree with him about this, that no matter who you are, you end up there in, in, in the grave. doesn't matter how strong you are, how healthy you are, how smart you are, everybody ends up there. I've said a few times there are these mega billionaires like Jeff Bezos of Amazon who are investing their billions in medical technologies, trying to enable them to extend their life by another century or two. Even if that works, it's just delaying the inevitable. Death has pretty much a, tr a perfect track record with one notable exception. Who am I talking about? There you go. You guys are all over this interactive thing. That's great. With one notable exception, death has a perfect track record. It's, it's inevitable. And not only is it inevitable, but the teacher says it's also unpredictable, at least the timing of it. He, um, he says this again about life in general. That, uh, that, that again, your, your, your strength, your health, your, your, your wisdom, your intelligence, all of these things might increase your odds of more favorable outcomes, but that in, in the end, life, life is kind of random, right? You can't avoid bad outcomes. He says, there is no, there, the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Think about that, um, the running race metaphor. Um, you know how in, when you watch the Olympics, you're watching all these sports that you never pay any attention to for four years, and then all of a sudden, like, everybody's an expert for a week or two? Like, I know zero things about the current state of women's 110-meter hurdles or 100-meter hurdles, whatever. I have, I have no idea. But every, you know, four years, you're watching, you're like, oh, these are, these are, the, these are the good ones. And, and I remember years ago watching the Olympics, the Summer Olympics, and Canada's not very good at the Summer Olympics. We like snow and ice because we're weird we're a weird country, and I'm uh, watching the Summer Olympics, and they, and they tell us, the announcers tell us that Perdita Felicien is this Canadian hurdler, and she's the world champion, she's the best, she's the fastest, strongest sprinter, her main competitor and rival didn't even make it to the finals, and so it's like, it's like a shoe-in, like we've got a gold medal coming up for Canada, right? This is exciting, this is history, this never happens, and I'm watching this, I'm so pumped, and Perdita Felicien trips over the first hurdle, knocks over a competitor, it's done, it's over, right? Freak accident, random event, but the strongest, fastest hurdler, the overwhelming favorite, out of the race. That's just what happens. Battle's not always to the strong. Um, when we were uh, on vacation in the Okanagan a few weeks ago, I was reading uh, Prince Caspian, one of the Chronicles of Narnia book, to our, uh, to our kids. And uh, in that book, Peter, who's kind of, I think, a teenager at the time, is, uh, is having this sword duel with King Miraz, a much older, stronger, more hardened warrior. And they're fighting, and Peter knows he's, he's outmatched. He's convinced he's going to die. It's not going well. And all of a sudden, King Miraz trips over a root, falls on his face. Two of his main right-hand men come and plunge their swords in his back because they want to usurp the throne. And now Peter has won the battle. Not because he was stronger, but because the guy tripped over a root and his own men were traitors. Battle's not always to the strong. These, these kinds of random things happen. But again, the teacher's point is not just life in general, but, but death. That the timing of death is, is unpredictable. You don't know. You don't know when your hour might come. That's what he says. He says, moreover, no one knows when their hour will, uh, will, will come. You have no idea if, if today might be the, the last day of, of your life. 
right? There's, there is this unpredictability to death. Um, and he talks about a fish. He talks about fish who are trapped by a net. You just imagine you're like a, like a tuna swimming along with your tuna pals. And uh, you're enjoying this clear blue waters. And all of a sudden, the circular net descends. And it wraps you up. And that, that's it. You didn't know it was coming, right? You didn't know that was your last day, but there it is. Or, or a bird. Like imagine a crow just happily hopping around your yard, gleefully destroying it by pecking at nothing in particular. When all of a sudden, a snare grabs it. And you think, sweet justice, not so smart anymore, are you, crow? I'm, I'm just imagining that there are like crows like watching and listening to me right now and are plotting their vengeance on me at this moment because those things are creepy, man. But anyways, the snare catches it, it's gone, it's done. It didn't even know what was coming. And I, I've been thinking about this a little, a little bit more recently. This is going to sound a little bit goofy to some of you, but I have become more aware that I'm getting older. So um, a couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a 21-year-old. And I don't know how it came up, but I said, what? I'm still pretty young, aren't I? And he goes, well, how old are you? And I'm going to tell you my age. I never do this because for years I've been embarrassed that I'm a lead pastor at the age I am. But here it is. I said, I'm, I'm 36. I'm turning 37 next, uh, next month. And he says to me, well, yeah, you're like, you're like middle-aged. <laughs> it's like, what? I'm <laughs> I'm middle-aged now? <laughs> this is how 21-year-olds see me? Man, this, it was a real wake-up call. It was a shock to the system. It's like, whoa, my life is half over. That's it. I mean, it could be 99% over for all I know. Who knows, right? You don't know when it's, when it's going to come. And so, it, you know, you kind of think, okay, well, if that's the case, then how have I lived my life? If I died today, would I be able to look back and say, yeah, I feel good about how I spent my life, what I was devoted to? You know, can I, have I lived without those regrets? This, this kind of awareness of the unpredictability of death leads to some urgency. I, I heard a story about Dwight Moody that really impacted me. Dwight Moody was um, the greatest evangelist of the 19th century, preached to thousands on both sides of the Atlantic. He was preaching in his home city of Chicago one night. It was in 1871. And he, uh, he's preaching, and he tells, he tells his congregation, hey, I want you, I'm not going to ask you to make a decision tonight. I want you to think about who Jesus is for the next week. And when you come back next week, uh, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about what you do with the question of who Jesus is. That's what he said. I want you to go away for a week and think about this. He invites the worship leader up to the front, and he's leading the concluding song, but he never finishes the song, because at that moment, there's all this clamor and noise outside and people rushing around and firefighters and everything going, and, uh, and it's the great Chicago fire of 1871. Burnt down almost all the city, 100,000 people displaced, 300 people killed. And Dwight Moody said his greatest regret, the thing that he thought about for the rest of his life, was that he would never again see this exact group of people. Here they were, and, and they were listening and he did not encourage them to make a decision about Jesus then and there. And he realized, look, this could be it for any of them. This is what he said afterwards. He said, I would rather have my right hand cut off than to give an audience a week now to decide what to do about Jesus. And we'll talk more about the whole Jesus thing. But for now, just let's say, I'm not going to give you a week. I'm going to do it later in like 20 minutes. But, but for now... Let's just say this, that, 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 that the inevitability and the unpredictability of death, it, um, it, it means that you've, you've got to decide on the important things in life right now. You know, there's not time to waste. 
You need to decide on these things. You, you need to be sure you're, you're ready for death if, if and when it comes. Now, we could do a lot of things, again, with, with that urgency. But here's the thing that the teacher of Ecclesiastes tells us to do. And this is kind of moving into our second big point. In, in, in light of the inevitability and unpredictability of death, the author of Ecclesiastes tells us to enjoy life. He says, given the short days of your life, enjoy it. Wear white. Put oil on your head. Those are symbols of, of joy. This is, there's a bit of a carpe diem kind of thing here. You know that Latin phrase that means seize the day? Your days are short. Make the most of them. Don't waste. Don't waste your life. Make the most of the, the short days that God has, has given you. And, and before we talk about that a little bit more, I do want to make a disclaimer here. By talking about the importance of enjoying life, I don't mean to brush aside the, the heaviness that is very real about life in this world. Life in this world that is full of evil and death and sin. There, there, is, there is darkness in the world. I'm certainly not advocating some shallow, uh, superficial obsession with adrenaline rushes. Certainly not saying you should just plaster over your pains and rejections by vices and, and addictions. It's not what, certainly not, not what the Bible is saying. And, and there is clearly a time to mourn and to lament. The author of Ecclesiastes says that in chapter 3. There's a time to laugh and to dance, but there's also a time to mourn and to weep. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You have a lot of psalms that are all about lament. You've got the book of Job. I don't know if you've read it, but it's not exactly a happy-go-lucky kind of book. You've got a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. The point is, there, there is a, a place and a season for lament. But that has to be balanced with this. That it is authentically a good thing to enjoy life, to find happiness in this life as we live it. And if we are, if we are, if we are approaching that in, in, by the right avenues. And so let's talk about some of those avenues. And, and the one that I would say Ecclesiastes especially majors on is that it is good to enjoy life through the avenue of God's good creation. He says, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. A lot of people, they eat just, you know, to kind of satisfy hunger, right? You, it doesn't matter how uh, bad the food is, you're just doing it because you, you've got to do it, right? You, you eat junk food sometimes to, to cover over rejection and hurt. A lot of us don't eat very well. I'm certainly guilty of that as well. Uh, before I got married, there was a lot of fast food, like a lot. So I get that. But I think what we're encouraged to do here is to eat intentionally, to eat well, to eat good food with thanksgiving. And when you do that, you, you really, there is joy, there's enjoyment of life that comes. Um, I'm going to reference this a, a, a fair bit this morning. Um, so uh, I, we were away for three weeks. The first week I was on a study week at Regent College. Second week we were uh, on vacation in the Okanagan. And then the third week, this is what I'm going to refer to a bunch of times, we uh, as, a, as a family with five other families from the church were doing a service trip in, in Oliver. And, uh, and so while we were there, we would uh, eat meals together. And one day we got this uh, barbecue pork shoulder roast 
from a food truck vendor in Oliver. And Carolyn and I have had uh, pulled pork sandwiches from this guy for a few years. Just the most delicious meat you've ever tasted. So my apologies to vegetarians here because I'm going to go on about this a little bit. But... We open this, open this package up, you get the buns and, and coleslaw and these, and these sauces, and he made this like huge hunk of meat for us. And it's just like, it's mouth-watering, and it's like just falling apart as soon as you touch it, right? It's just like the most delicious thing ever. Kids didn't like it because kids are weird, and they, they have like anti-taste buds. But all of us adults, we're sitting there, and we're, it, all you hear is like, oh... Mmm, this is so, wow, this is so good. Right, like, there's just this enjoyment, this happiness. Like, look at that. It's not, I mean, maybe, that's, maybe that doesn't really depict it. I wish I could, pump, like, pipe the smell into you guys. It was so good, right? It just fills you with enjoyment to eat good food. He says, drink your wine with a, with a joyful heart. A lot of people drink wine and other forms of alcohol, uh, to cover over, to plaster over hurt and pain, or to alter their state of mind. This isn't that, but it is possible and even good to drink wine in a way that glorifies God and gives thanks for his good creation. And Ecclesiastes says that you can do all of this because God has already approved what you do. And I, I, I am with one scholar who says this is probably a reference to Genesis 1 and 2 where God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and, and he gives them, he tells them, look, every seed-bearing uh, plant, every, every, every fruitful plant is yours to eat. It's all yours. God wants his people to enjoy his creation. And that's because God himself enjoys it. What's his repeated refrain in Genesis 1? If you've read it, what does God say again and again and again as he makes stuff? It's good. It's good, it's good, it's good. God finds enjoyment and pleasure in what he makes. You get a little bit of that in, in Genesis 2 verse 9, where, which says that the trees in the garden were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now that, uh, in, in Hebrew, using a little interesting fact, in Hebrew, often word order is important. The more important thing goes first. And so what's interesting here is that it could be that the, the aesthetic value of the trees, the, the pleasing beauty of the trees is actually as important or even more important than the functionality of the trees. That God makes his creation and he says, this, this is beautiful, it's good, I enjoy this. And, and by the way, this is a bit of a side note, but it's a really important one. This is one of the foundations for why it's good to enjoy life to enjoy creation because this is actually who God is. If we're made in his image, we're supposed to reflect him, and this is, this is who he is. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now that's not just the joy that God gives to people, it's the joy that God himself has. He has joy. We see it in Jesus we see Jesus feasting and celebrating with people in the Gospels. We see Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding and apparently cultivating a certain amount of happiness and enjoyment in that place. Jesus says in John 15, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You see, you hear that? He's got joy and he wants it to be in us. We honor God. We honor our Lord when we find joy in life, including in creation. That's why he's made it so beautiful. Again, uh, Okanagan trip uh, reference. So in the mornings we would work, 
including the kids. I'll talk about that more later on. Free, free child labor, apparently, is what we're all about. Uh, so the kids would work. And then in the afternoon, once we were finished our work, uh, we could do whatever we wanted. Which, because it was 40 degrees outside, what we wanted to do was to be in the water every single day. And so we'd go to different beaches and waterways. And on, on Friday, we kind of said, look, let's go to the beach that everyone agrees is the best beach. And nobody could agree. There was no consensus. And so we decided, let's just go to, let's go to a new beach. None of us have ever heard of anyone going there in OK Falls. Like, who talks about going to Okanagan Falls except for Tickleberries? So let, let's just go there. We know there's a beach there. Let's try that out. So we go, and it turns out it's the best beach. It's maybe the best beach ever. Somebody said, I've been to Hawaii, this is better. So that was a quote, real thing. Okanagan Falls, don't tell anybody. Uh, we go there, it's the greatest because for kids especially, the water is like waist deep, 100 meters out and more. There's a, there's a splash pad and a playground right there. The sand is, is beautiful. The water is warm. I hate cold water. It's like, it was like a bathtub. That was perfect. It was awesome. And the view was just incredible. Like it was so, it was so beautiful. And so some of us are just kind of sitting there in the, in the water, in this sand, looking out. Our kids are having an amazing time. And it's just like, this is so good. Thank you so much, Lord. You know, we often talk about the problem of evil in the world. Like why is there evil? We could actually ask the question, why is there good? Why is there beauty? Given all the sin and death and evil in the world brought about by our own actions, why is there such good and beauty still in the world? But there is. And it's such a cause for thanksgiving. So again, whoo! So again, because of the shortness of our days, the inevitability and unpredictability of death, enjoy life. Enjoy life through God's creation, his good creation. Make the most of it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Enjoy life through God's good creation. First avenue. Second avenue. Let's, let's take that um, for God has approved what you do and, and push that a little bit further. An avenue, uh, another avenue of enjoyment in life, in, in the light of, of the certainty of death, is, is obedience. At the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, we read, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So this, this is our duty. This is our responsibility to obey God. But it's not just our duty. It's also, again, a source of enjoyment. Uh, Psalm 19 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. In John 15, that passage about Jesus saying, may my joy, my joy, I want my joy to be in you. Right after that, the next verse, Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. There's something, some connection between joy and happiness and obeying God, living the way that he has created us to live. See, I, you, you've probably heard your parents say this. Maybe you've said it to your kids. I know I've said it here before. But we often think of rules and commands and instructions as being a, a deprivation of joy, right? It's like it's meant to keep us from, from having fun. That's kind of how we think about it sometimes. And certainly bad rules and laws do that. And I would say the further and further our Western culture flees 
from its rootedness in Christian faith in a biblical kind of worldview, the more of those kinds of rules and laws we're, we're going to see that are actually a hindering of human flourishing, a hindering of, of living the way God intended us to live. However, good rules and laws, especially the command of Jesus to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love one another, obeying those commands, well, that leads to happiness and to joy. And we see that in all kinds of ways. Uh, we see it, for example, in, uh, in our relationships with our spouses. You know, if you're, if you're married, do you, do you experience more happiness if you honor and respect and love your spouse or if you disregard them to pursue your own selfish satisfaction? You know, men, let's say if you're, if you're walking along with your wife and in the other way comes this very attractive woman jogging like in a sports bra, uh, if you, you, you might get some fleeting satisfaction by taking a good look. But I guarantee you, you will be undermining the joy and happiness in your marriage. And if you're caught looking, that deprivation is going to be pretty immediate and swift. <laughs> right? There, there's happiness and joy in laying those things down in order to love and respect your, your spouse. You see it in mission and service. Okanagan trip reference number three coming up. Um, I said we worked in the morning. So we were there with uh, an organization, a ministry called the Gleaners. And this is the Gleaners. It's kind of inspired by biblical commands in the Old Testament uh, for farmers to leave the edges of their crop unharvested so that the poor would have something to eat. It was a way of, of caring for the poor. And so what the Gleaners, modern-day iteration, do is that they take produce that can't be sold in stores, and they, uh, they cut it up. We cut up so many potatoes. I had potatoes in my dreams for days. You cut these up, you dry them, uh, dice them up, and, uh, and, and then you package it, package all these vegetables as soup mix. And it gets sent to developing countries around the world. So in the week that we were there, we uh, prepared 70,000 servings of this, of this soup that was going to be sent to places like, uh, like, uh, like uh, Ukraine. Uh, I think they actually had a shipment going out to. Uh, and, and so we were doing this work. And I'll tell you that at the beginning of the week, our son Zachary was not looking forward to this week at all. And there was one reason, and it was the word work. He thought, I, I'm going to have to work. This is going to be horrible. What a terrible thing. He's five, he was five years old at the time. Did not like the sound of that at all. He's six now. I know that sounds like it was like years ago. It was just two weeks ago. He had a birthday a couple days ago. Anyways. Um, so, uh, so Zachary, and the, at the end of the week, we all go around the group, and we're all sharing the thing that stood out to us or, the, or how God spoke to us and worked in us. And Zachary, along with a bunch of other kids, said their favorite thing, their number one thing in the week was working. I mean, they had, they had fun jobs, but I, I would think that part of the joy, part of the happiness they experienced in working was because what we were doing was, was kingdom-building work. We find enjoyment when we, when we work in ways that honors God and loves others, that serves others. Saw even this, this last week, Summerfest. There were a lot of people who put a lot of work into that. I know one person, I won't, I won't tell you his name because he doesn't like the spotlight, but he was hanging lights outside in the downpour of, of Wednesday night. There were a lot of people who worked hard to put this event on, and it was incredible. It was so good. We had people from the community, like Tati said in the video, who we had never met before, who walked in. It was like a, a couple, 
a couple, maybe half a kilometer away, a kilometer away, they heard the music wafting over the trees. And they were like, what is that noise? And they followed their ears. They thought it must be in Myrtle Park. They end up in the church. They end up meeting a whole bunch of us. It was so good. It was so good for us to work together to love our community and provide an opportunity to make our love for Jesus known in this place. You, you see this happiness that comes from obedience in, uh, in worship, right? The loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. There's a joy in that. Final reference of the Okanagan trip. Every night we would, uh, we'd worship together and we'd do, do devotions with, uh, with the families. And those times of worship, just in a circle, 20, 25 people, what, that, was, that was my highlight. I, just, I love that so much, just worshiping our God, expressing our love for him together. This is what we're instructed to do. This is how we're meant to live, and there is enjoyment in that. I know that's counterintuitive, right? Obeying God's commands, his instructions to love him, to love one another, is actually one of the greatest avenues of genuine joy and happiness that we can experience in this life. And so given the inevitability and unpredictability of death, enjoy life by obeying God. The final source of, of avenue of enjoyment we'll talk about is, uh, is righteousness. Now I know that's a big, scary, theological sounding word, isn't it? Righteousness. But what it means at its core is, is right relationships. That we enjoy life when we are in right relationship with others. You know, some people, they live with this like bitterness inside of them, right? With this resentment towards others. They can't let some hurt, some slight, some pain go. And they live with this and they just waste their life holding on. A lot of people have said things like this, but as a basketball fan, we're going to go with the late, great Kobe Bean Bryant, who said, where is it? Where is my, life is too short to sit around and hold grudges. It doesn't make any sense to do it. It's what a lot of us do. And so righteousness, living in right relationship with others, actually leads to joy. Ecclesiastes gets at that by talking about, again, our, well, he says, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. There, there's a lot of joy to be experienced when you are in right relationship with your spouse. When there's this unresolved conflict, this tension between you, uh, that's going to really suck the, the joy and the, happen, and the happiness out of your life. But there is, if there is this constant pattern of reconciliation and confession and forgiveness, well, that's going to go a long ways in cultivating joy. But the Bible pushes that even deeper. And, and, and points to the most fundamental relationship we have as humans, which is our relationship with our Creator, with our God. And the Bible tells us that this relationship is the greatest source of enjoyment in life. Psalm 68 verse 3 says, May the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. See, we, we think about Following Jesus, and following Jesus is challenging. It's difficult. There are seasons where you just don't know where he is, and, and it's, it's really hard. But at the same time, to follow him, to know him, to live in relationship with him, brings joy, brings happiness to the heart. Psalm 37 says, delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart when you, when you make him front and center. When your eyes are set on him, when your heart is set on him, your Lord, your maker, then everything else in life is able to give you 
proper enjoyment. See, what often happens is, is that we load created things in our life with the expectation that they are going to give us happiness and meaning and identity. And they're not made for that. They can't bear the weight of that. But when you have your heart set on God and are deriving your greatest satisfaction and joy from him, then everything else is able to take its proper place. I had this fresh understanding of this a few weeks ago. So those first two weeks that I was away, the study week and the, and the week of vacation, I spent a lot of time on the bus uh, riding to and from Regent College and uh, spent a lot of time on my paddle. I was a little antisocial during the vacation week. I just spent a lot of time on my paddleboard in the middle of the lake. That's why I'm a little bit more tan than I usually am. Um, but those were, those were times of, of reflection for me because I was coming off a, a very busy season of ministry. I think I'd preached something like 21 out of 22 weeks. I was tired, feeling somewhat disillusioned, wrestling with the same old questions I've often wrestled with about why, why isn't there more fruit? Why am I not, you know, experiencing more, more joy in this? And, and not for the first time I realized that I had made ministry and ministry success an idol in my life. I was deriving so much of my identity and my meaning in life from my work here at the bridge. And, uh, and marriage and kids and ministry, these, these are really good things. But I, I realize that if, if that is the basis for my life, th those, are, those are fleeting. Those are fleeting things. Th those things can be taken away. And so, so th those, those weeks of reflection were a, a time for me to say to God once again, God, look, you've got to be everything to me. You, you, your love is the one thing that's not fleeting, that isn't, that isn't fickle. Your love is the one thing that's dependable and that's enduring. I, I want you, I want my relationship with you to be the most important thing in my life. It was an opportunity to lay down that idol, particularly of ministry success, in, in a fresh way. See, this is why Dwight Moody had such an urgency about telling people about Jesus because he is the source of righteousness between us and God. The problem is, when we talk about making him the basis, the foundation, is, is that we actually aren't in right relationship with him. Here, here's, here's something maybe you haven't heard before. We talk about sin, talk about how sin ruptures our relationship with God. What if we thought about sin, as, as, among other things, as our own deprivation of true happiness and joy? You know, if, if sin is actually a decision to work against the way that God created us to live, it is inevitably going to lead to futility and frustration and disappointment. To live life the way God created us to live leads to joy. So sin, you could say, is actually our own choices to deprive ourselves of real lasting joy. And when we do that, we cut off our relationship with God. We're not, we're not right with him. We're not okay with him. Ecclesiastes actually says, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. We're all in the same boat, and this is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to make us right with God. He gave his life in our place as our substitute, a sacrifice for sin so that the debt that we had incurred could be paid for, that it could be settled, and that we could be made right with God once again. 
The consequences of our sin paid for so that we could be in right relationship with God. And and this is what Paul says in Romans 3. He says this righteousness, this right relationship is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It comes to us by faith when we trust in what Jesus has done. Not by what we've done, but by what he has done. He says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see, my friends, this is real joy. This is real happiness. To know that you are walking in a relationship of love with the one who made you that your sins have been forgiven, and that this joy that you experience in him will last forever. See, this is why it is so crucial that we derive our enjoyment in life from relationship with God. Given the the shortness of our days, given the inevitability and unpredictability of death, our relationship with God is the one that seals our eternal fate. It's the one that ensures that death doesn't have that finality that the author of Ecclesiastes talks about. It's it's what ensures that we will enjoy forever with God pleasures at his right hand, as David says in the Psalms. That's why it is so important that you derive your joy and your happiness in life, first and foremost, from your relationship with God. And then all of those other things can fall into place. So given all of this, this is why I'm saying be a hedonist. Not in a worldly sense. Not pursuing superficial, shallow, fleeting uh, uh, joys, thrills, whatever that stuff that comes and goes. It's an illusion. It's vapor. It's meaningless, as Ecclesiastes says. But instead, be a hedonist in a biblical sense. Make pleasure the goal of your life, but but pleasure first and foremost in God. Delight in Him. Find your pleasure in obeying Him, in loving one another, and loving God. Find your enjoyment and your pleasure in enjoying God's creation with gladness and with with thanksgiving. Pursue lasting happiness. Stop, as C.S. Lewis said, and I quoted this a while back, stop playing around making mud cakes in the slums when a vacation at the beach is offered to you. There is happiness in God. Pursue it with all your heart. Let's pray, and then, and then we're going to do this. We're going, we're, going to, we're going to express our joy, our, our happiness in God, and what he has done for us in Christ through communion. So I'm going to invite the servers to come on up, and let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, oh, we praise you, Lord, for the joy that is available to us in life for the enjoyment that you make possible in life. We know, Lord, that there are people who are mourning, people who are are wearing the heaviness of life. We don't dismiss that. Your word doesn't dismiss that at all. But I pray, Lord, even for those who are in that place, Lord, that they would turn their eyes to you and that they would know that in you they have a love and a joy and a peace and a hope that transcends the circumstances of this life. I pray, Lord, that they would be right with you, that our hearts would be right with you, and that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would anoint us, Lord God, with your presence in a fresh way today.
I pray that we would repent of all the ways that we have sought happiness in useless, meaningless, illusory ways. And that we would put our hope and our trust and our joy and our meaning and our identity in you. The only one who is able to bear the weight of all of that. God, I pray that you would give us a clear Clear sight, clear eyes, Lord, in terms of what you have created us for so that we can live in the fullness of joy that comes in you. And Jesus, we thank you most of all that you gave your life for us, that you have made us right with you, that while we would have been condemned on our own in our sin, that you have, you have done what is necessary to reconcile us to God, to make us new, to give us life eternal. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know more of him and make him known today. We'd love to hear more from you.